0: All right, good morning. good morning. It's good to be with you guys again. I had a, a couple weeks of not being up here, and one week I was away and uh, doing some stuff with family. And last week got to sit under uh, Aaron's teaching. I'm so thankful for Pete and for Aaron and the time that they poured into uh, equipping us and going through this series and, and just the work that they've been doing. It's really been awesome to have other people join in along the way, Matthew, David, <clears throat> um, James will be next week. Um, So we've been in a series that we've been called True and Better. uh, And we've been going through looking at 13 different characters in the Old Testament and asking the question, how is it that each of those people points to the true and better version of themselves? Uh, because oftentimes the way that we read the Bible is that we read it as a moralistic tale of how we should act or the ways that we should live our lives better. And we look at biblical characters and we can go, how do I model, or, or model my life after their example? And oftentimes what God is doing is He's not sharing the lives of these people for them to be an example. He's sharing the lives of these people to show how God is at work in each of their lives to point us to the true and better. And so we're, we're doing this all the way up until Easter, and on Easter Sunday, we're going to be talking about the true and better resurrection and how God has, has done the best work possible to make us new and give us new life. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for that as well. So uh, if you were with us the last couple weeks, you'll know that what we did is we, we looked at Solomon, who was a king, and then Elijah, who was a priest, or I, I'm sorry, a prophet, and, um, and Solomon great, built this great empire uh, for the nation of Israel. But uh, even though he was wise and God gave him wisdom... He used that wisdom for his own benefit rather than for the benefit of his people to amass wealth for himself. And so the the nation begins to fragment and fracture into two different groups of people. And so God then sends these people called prophets to warn Israel and to draw them back into relationship with God and to say to them, look, you're going the wrong way. This is not going to go well for you. Come back to him. Understand what it means to be his people. And what we find through the story, if you keep reading from Solomon through Elijah of different prophets, is that eventually what happens is that God comes to a day where He says, you have completely gone off the rails and you have completely turned away from Me. And so in this day, at this time, for your good, I am actually going to use other nations to conquer you. Which seems like a really bad thing, Right? <laughs> I mean, if you were a nation, I mean, just think of our nation, right? If another nation came in and conquered us and God says, I'm using this for your good, would you believe him? But that's what God does. He, he comes in and he says, "I, I, I I'm going to allow other nations to be used as my tool to come in and, and conquer you and drag your people to exile and slavery. And I'm not doing it because I'm abandoning you. I'm doing it as a way to discipline you and wake you up from your idolatry. You've walked away from Me and since you walked away from Me, I'm going to use the most extreme measure I have in my toolbox to bring you back. And so that's what God does. He, he, he uses that nation of Assyria for the northern kingdom of Israel. And he uses the nation of Babylon under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Israel and Jerusalem itself. If you're a history buff, these two things happened in 722 B.C. and in 586 B.C. Jerusalem, the capital, the place where God's temple was, is destroyed. Everything that Solomon worked for is leveled. And God's people are carried off into slavery. Now you think, okay, it can't get worse than that. That's got to be the end of the story. And yet it's not. (laughs) Because as mighty as Babylon was, God actually rose up another nation called Persia who then dominated Babylon in in 597 B.C. Not long after Israel was taken captive uh, by the nation of Babylon. And so the story that we're going to look at today is the story of God's people, Israel, within this nation of Persia and how God works to save them. And this is found in the book of Esther. So uh, if you're going to read along with us, it's on page uh, 346, but let me set it up this way uh, just so that you know a little bit of the context of what's going on here. God's people are now living as exiles. They're living as strangers among the Persian Empire. They are a minority people in the midst of this grand city in the capital called Susa. And there is a, the, the king of the nation, the empire of Persia, is a man named Xerxes, and he is the most powerful man in the entire world at this time. And we're introduced to him because he's uh, not a very great figure, at least morally in terms of his character, because he decides that he's going to throw a huge banquet for himself for 180 days just to show how great he is, and it's basically just a hundred days for him to have an excuse for him and his officials just to be drunk all the time. And so they have this lavish party, and um, and he calls to his queen, and her name is Vashti, to come and basically dance before his officials. He wants to parade her around as a possession of the king because that's how powerful he is. And Vashti does something really unexpected. She refuses. Now, you don't refuse the most powerful person in the, in the world without there being consequences. And what happens to Vashti is she ends up getting removed as queen. She's put aside. And, and, and Xerxes says, I will not have you as my queen anymore because you did not do my bidding. And so what he does instead is he says, I'm going to go and look for a new queen, a compliant queen, a pretty queen. One who will do all of my bidding, everything that I ask, no matter what. And so he looks throughout his entire empire, and, th- and who he finds is this young, beautiful Jewish girl named Esther. And so he decides to take Esther first into his harem to be a concubine, and he sleeps with her. And it says that she was pleasing to him. And so because she was pleasing to him, he made her his queen. That's how we're introduced to Esther. How's her resume so far? Uh, Yeah, a little sketchy, right? Um, it, It gets worse though because Esther now is the queen of the nation of Persia, but she realizes what happened to the previous queen and so what she does is because she thinks maybe that her identity as a foreigner as a jewish woman isn't going to go so well with her new king her new husband and so she decides that she's going to go with the flow and keep it a secret and so she becomes submissive and cowardly promiscuous and she breaks almost every covenantal law that the nation of Israel had. She up until this point, she is no Jewish hero, according to the Jews' own kind of story and and, uh, and history. And yet, even though this is Esther's background, this is her backstory. Even though she has compromised herself in almost every way, God allows her to rise into a seat of incredible power in the most influential nation empire on earth. Why in the world would God do that? Let's read, <laughs> and we'll find out. page 346. This is Esther chapter four, and we're going to read verses five to 17. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Mordecai is her older cousin who who had taken care of uh, Esther since she was a small girl. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had, had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. There's a big problem. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But... Thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. So Mordecai goes and he, he presents himself at the, the king's gate. And he's trying to get the attention of his younger cousin. And he's in mourning because of what's going to happen to his people and the reason that he's at the king's gate is because Mordecai, as a Jew, has no ability to get beyond that gate to get to the king himself. But he knows that there is someone who has that ability, and that is his cousin. And so there, there's a special part of the city that was the, the palace complex. It was where all the royal officials lived and where the king and his court lived. It was the place where the palace was. It was kind of the the seat of government. It's where all the laws and ideas that shaped the nation of Persia flowed from. It was the center of where you wanted to be. If you were trying to rise up the, the ladder of success in the nation of Persia, you wanted to be behind that gate. And that's where Esther is. And so Mordecai isn't there. He's on the outside of the gate. To this palace, and he's trying to get the attention of Esther. Now, why? The reason is because a plan is now in motion to exterminate the entire Jewish population living in Persia. See, here's what was going on. The king, Xerxes, was deceived into believing that this nation within the nation, this people of Israel, were a threat to his empire, that they were bad people, that they needed to be stomped out. And so on a set date, which is the 13th of Adar, so if you want to win a Bible trivia quiz, you remember the 13th of Adar, okay? That's like the Ides of March, I guess. On that date, that specific date, an edict was going to go into place where it actually became legal for any neighbor of a Jewish family to go to their neighbor's house, kill them, and plunder everything that they owned. So now the nation of Israel is living within Susa and every single one of their neighbors who is not a Jew is now a threat. Because they're thinking to themselves, who is it that's going to attack? Who's going to come for us in the middle of the night once this edict goes into place? And Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, because of where you are, you have to use your position in your palace. Use your royal standing to save your people. Only you have the influence to do what only you can do. We can't get there, but you're there. Please do something. And the first thing that you learn from the the book and the story of Esther is that God uses people in every position in society to advance His story and His mission. He uses everyone. He doesn't just use church people. He uses people in government. He uses people in business. He uses people in finance. He uses people in teaching. He uses all of that. Why? One of the things that we're told at the very end of God's story in the book of Revelation is that we see that when God comes down to earth, we sang about it this morning already, when He comes back into the world that he created, one of the things that he's come to do, in fact, the primary thing that he's come to do, is to set absolutely everything in this world right again. Not just the religious aspects of life, not just your spiritual aspects, but every aspect. The way the world is governed, the way people are taught, the way that we relate to one another, all of it, every single piece of it he's going to come into this world and undo the corruption and the sin and the brokenness and the shame of it all to wipe all of it away and put all of it back together see the end of our story the, the end of of god's story is not just that we get taken out of the world and the world goes to hell in a handbasket the story of the bible is that god comes back to earth and makes earth into heaven That's what he's coming to do, to completely heal and restore everything. Now, now why does he have to do this? Remember way back in week one, it was 12 weeks ago, so I don't expect you to remember way back when we were looking at Adam and the story of Adam and Eve. We found out that when our relationship with God broke initially, when we walked away from him, that it wasn't just our relationship to him that broke, it was our relationship to everything our relationship to one another, and the world, absolutely everything started to break down. And and God made a promise that He would undo the curse. That He would come in and heal it all one day. And, And one of the things that He says throughout His story over and over and over again is I will use everyone who belongs to Me to show My healing power by the way they do their work today. I'm going to show every person on the planet, what I'm ultimately going to do through my Son, Jesus Christ. Which means, family, this is what it means, that your work in the world, your place in the world, your position, the, the things and resources that God gives you, your your standing, your, even, even the things that you do professionally in medicine, in teaching, in business, As a student, as a contractor, as a government official, as a mom, as a neighbor. All of it matters. All of it has meaning. All of it is a way that God is going to use you in particular to fill and show Himself off to the world. All of it. You think, well, I don't have much influence. You have way more than you realize. I'm the low guy on the totem pole. It doesn't matter. So is Esther. Look how God elevated her for such a time as it was. See, Esther's story says that the Jewish people were in exile, that Jerusalem was destroyed, right? We already mentioned that. But at this point in God's story, Israel was actually given permission to start to go back to their homeland and to rebuild And so right now, during this story in Esther's day, there are a group of God's people who are emigrating back to the nation of Israel to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple, to put everything back together again. And yet, so you would expect, if God is going to be working in the world anywhere, it's going to be where? Back home. In Israel. That's going to be the place where He's working. Where does this story take place again? Thousands of miles away. In pagan Persia. In the most corrupt, upside-down nation. The most power-hungry individuals on the planet. And, And look who he's using to do it. He's using a government official who's afraid to tell people about her true identity. See, God takes Esther who got to where she was through terrible decision making and he makes her into someone great in order to save his people and to show the world what he looks like. So let me ask you this. I'll Just throw these things out there. What are some of the spheres of influence that God has given you? What are some of the positions, the palaces that you live in? If you're new to us, we often dialogue. So you actually get a chance to respond. So where what... What influence has he given you? Man, responsible for 110 people. Big responsibility, right? (laughs) With that responsibility comes incredible influence. What's that? As a parent. Yeah. For your kids, there's no more influential person in the first 18 years of of their lives than their parents. And you think as a parent, ah, it's not true. I mean, they're always listening to their friends and they kind of (laughs) do exactly what their friends tell them to do. It's not true. They're watching you, Mom. They're watching you, Dad. Incredible influence. What else? In your neighborhood? Yeah. With your neighbors and your friends. I often think that, you know... Most of what you do is hidden behind walls, and, and much of it is. But don't underestimate the amount of influence that you can have over the people that you live next door to. Yeah. Yeah, so if you're in the, in, in the medical field, not just the people that you work alongside or, or help to manage and make sure that they're effective in their jobs, but the people that you are exercising that health care to. Incredible amount of influence. Anything else? Yeah. Shaping young minds, right? <laughs> Teaching. Here's the thing that I want you to see, and even if you didn't kind of offer the sphere of influence that maybe you have, I, this is what I want you to see over the spheres that you do have. You have been put into your position for such a time as this. You're not in it by accident. It's not coincidence. Here's the thing about the book of Enster. It is the only book in the entire Bible where God is never mentioned once. Read it. Go through the entire story. He's never mentioned once. And here's the reason. The author is doing something incredibly wise and tricky. (laughs) He's playing an April Fool's joke on you. He, he he almost has to twist the language so that even when Esther's saying, okay, go and fast for me, she never mentions prayer. Why in the world would you mention fasting and not prayer? Prayer is what you do when you don't eat. Because you have to pray that God gives you the ability to keep not eating. It They go together every single time in the entire Bible except here. Why? Because... The author wants you to know that God is working in ways that you don't expect or plan for. He wants you to see. He wants you to read through the book of Esther and then read through your own life in such a way where you go, I'm on the hunt for him everywhere because he's in everything. So when you read through the book of Esther you're 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 not just to see all these coincidences that suddenly culminate in the fact that Esther's in the position that she's in you're supposed to read all those things and go god was there god was there god was there god was there he was doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It gives you influence, right? It's a position. And here's the thing like we can see the bad things that we go through and wear them as a badge of identity to to our because we, we, we want to cling to that identity as being like, ah, oh, I've had it rougher than you and here's why my life is so bad or here's why I'm so down or here's why I'm so depressed. And yet God wants to turn those things actually into instances and opportunities where you could help someone who's struggling with that identity so that you could lead them out of it. Good experiences and especially bad experiences, Right? And, and here's the thing, there is no experience, there is no position, there is no status that God cannot use for His glory and for the salvation of people. That's Esther's story. See, and, and, and here's the thing, you could go, well, like the experiences that I've had or the position that I have, you know, maybe I'm in my job and I didn't make the best choices to to get there. Maybe you've done things that you aren't proud of to get where you are today. So did Esther. See, no matter how much you've screwed up your life, no matter how much you've made mistakes to even get where you are today where you go, I don't even deserve the status that I have. How could God possibly use me where I am when I didn't even get here through honest means? He can. He can. He did with Esther and he can with you. You can't actually write yourself out of his story. You can't do it. He has no plan B. He has a plan A and he's executing it right now in your life. Do you see it? He can use you. He will use you if you listen to him. That's Esther's story. That's Israel's story. How many times have they messed up? How many times do we... See, his story always confronts us with this, that he continuously pursues even horrible people with incredible grace. And he does it even though we don't ask for it, even though we don't deserve it, and even though we don't appreciate it when we get it. And he still does it. That's what makes grace amazing, by the way. So I just consider whether or not he's telling you, I will use you. Are you willing? Will you say yes? Now here's the thing that you need to know before you say yes, okay? Don't rush the stage uh, and say, and, uh, and, yeah, I'm in, because there's something that you need to know. There's incredible risk with saying yes. It's really, really risky. Why do I say that? Because look at Esther's story. Uh, Esther's first reply to Mordecai uh, she goes on and she says, All the king's officials and the people of the province know that any man or woman who approaches the king without being summoned by the king has one law. They die. Unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She go, She's saying to, to to Mordecai, Do you understand what you're asking me to do? Do you understand the risk that's involved? The danger that I'm in? Do you know that if I go to him without calling me, I could perish. And I I don't know if you're aware of this, Mordecai, but the reason that I got to be queen is because the previous queen went to the king and she was taken out. She stood up to his power. And the king didn't like that very much. And so that's why I'm queen. And by the way, I haven't even been called to the king's side for 30 days. Do you think he sleeps alone at night? I don't have his favor. If I go to him, I'm throwing everything away. How in the world can you ask me to do this? (laughs) And Mordecai goes, I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. And I'm asking you to do it anyway. Because this is his reply to her, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews is going to arise from another place. God is going to save us. He's either going to use you or He's going to use something else, but He's going to do it. But if you choose not to get on His plan, you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, what he's saying is, look, if if you risk losing your place, yeah, you might lose everything. I know exactly what I'm asking you to do. But if you don't risk losing your place, if you don't risk losing your reputation, your status, your position, if you don't use it for God's mission, you will lose everything. Because you will not be on His plan, and His plan gets worked out every single time. See, if your people are killed you're going to be found out and killed too. And if help comes from another place, you're still going to be found out and you're going to be a traitor to your people. And what's going to happen to you then? See, this is your only choice is to be risky with what God's given you. Now you think, okay, what in the world does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you. Because whatever position that you have, which you have far more than you realize, is a position, is a status, is a is a place to be used for more than just your personal comfort, your personal advancement, your personal provision, your personal happiness. Everything that you are given is to be used for people outside the palace and for God's glory. So here's the thing. If, if you do belong to Jesus, if you're part of His family, then in Christ you have access to the King of Heaven. Do you not? You have authority over principalities and powers. Tremendous influence. Tremendous standing. Tremendous position. And you have a secure position that can never be taken away once you're His. See, and here's the thing. If if you are unwilling to risk the earthly things that He puts in your hand, in order to advance the heavenly agenda, then your earthly position at this moment is more central to your identity than your standing with Christ. Did you catch that? Really important. If you're unwilling to risk the earthly things that you have, the earthly influence that God has given you, For his heavenly agenda, then that earthly influence and standing means more to you than he does at this moment. Doesn't mean that it always will, doesn't mean that it hasn't in the past, but you need to know every other position that you have, every other piece of influence that you've been given, your job, your finances, your social status, your family, absolutely everything is temporary and fading. It's momentary. And it's going away. And so why not use it for something that can't perish? Right? I mean, a thousand years from now, when you're living in the kingdom of God, and you have a thousand years of security and and, and position before the king, and you're, you're in relationship with him without sin relationship with His people without sin, and you have the perspective of a thousand years with Him, and you look back at this momentary 80 years on this planet, isn't it going to shock you that you weren't more risky with it? <laughs> like, why in the world did I not step out in faith more in light of what I know now? Here's the truth. You know it now. <laughs> right? Right? so use it now. You've been given a great, incredible opportunity. You can be risky with absolutely everything that God puts in your hand. Because you know that, that while everything else could be at risk, you will never be at risk. See, so you, you can be risky with your position at work because even if you lose the favor of your administrator, you have the favor of your king, which will never go away. Even if you get passed over for that promotion at work, you know that you are in the highest standing in His heavenly court, which can never be taken away from you. Even if you chose to give away 10 or 20% of your income to the church and to the poor and away to other people, you know that you have riches in heaven that can be never tampered with, where moth cannot destroy. You you can be radically risky. Isn't that right? See, Mordecai says if you're unwilling to use it, then you believe your standing in the world is actually what makes you, you. And a day is coming when God in His grace will pull the rug out from under you so that you can see that you've been building your house on sand rather than on the rock. And by the way, if and when that day comes, that is His grace to you to show you that you could have been more risky and that He didn't have to do it. Can you do that? Can you be risky with it? Can you step into the gap on behalf of others? Can you take the blame for other people even though it's not your fault? Can you be risky with the things that He gives you? I remember um, growing up, I, I have the oldest uh, child of two and I have a younger sister who's five years younger than me. And five years younger, to have a, a younger sister who's five years younger, she's just young enough um, to know that she can blame me for everything and mom and dad will believe it every time. <laughs> right? And so I, I grew up in a household where we were constantly getting in fights and and, and um, at each other's throats, and inevitably something would happen, mom and dad would rush in. What happened? And she would she could turn on tears in like 1.3 seconds, and and they would buy it every single time. It drove me crazy. I hated getting blamed for stuff when I was growing up. I just hated it. And uh, and so one of the things I realized that happened to me over time is that I would try to do stuff intentionally so that I wouldn't get blamed for things, to absolve myself from guilt, so that I I wasn't even in the room. I couldn't possibly. I have the best alibi. Nobody could get through it. I just wasn't there. Or or and I got really good at ex- explaining things so that so that it made me look like the the one that came out smelling like a rose, and everybody else kind of got the the other end of it. And, uh, and, and this went on for a long period of time. And I came to faith when I was 21 years old. And the first job that I had after I had come to faith is that I worked uh, in a country club uh, in the kitchen. I was a prep cook. And so I did all the slicing and dicing and kind of preparation for all the different meals and, and things. And uh, and one of the guys that I worked with in that environment was a, a guy who was about two years younger than I am or was at the time. And... Um, and we did a lot of stuff together because there's a lot of things that were bigger than just for one person and I remember his reputation in that environment wasn 't very good. He was kind of known as the clumsy guy, the klutz the, he just he couldn 't do anything right I mean even when he did something right, it would kind of turn back on him, and, and he 'd end up like you know he just didn 't have a great reputation and I, I remember um, learning more about his story and realizing I was in school at the time, I was doing this for for just, you know, side income. He was doing it because he needed a, a way to live. He was full-time, I was part-time, <clears throat> and uh, he wasn't going to school. This was his livelihood. This is what he was banking on, and this was the best position that he could get himself into. And And as the summer went on, I remember that he was very close to losing his job. And one day in particular, we had an assignment to do where both of us were kind of charged to do it, and it didn't get done. And because of that, it wasn't ready for the time that the meal service came along, which is a big deal in food service. And, uh, and reckoning time came. And I remember standing next to him doing something else, and the boss comes over and says, hey, why didn't this get done? And immediately I remember... Like, I don't even remember the words coming out, but I just remembered, like, it was my fault. I told him that I was going to get it done, and it didn't get done, and, and it's not done. I'm, I'm really sorry. And it turned out that, you know, it wasn't a huge deal, and, and a bunch of us chipped in, and we ended up getting it done. And I remember him asking me afterwards, why in the world did you do that? Like, it was both of our responsibility. And I said one of the most profound things that I'd ever said to that point in my entire 21-year existence, I said, I don't know. (laughs) 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 And to be honest, I didn't know. I, I had no idea why those words came out of my mouth until... I was doing a Bible study with some of my newfound brothers in Christ later on in that semester the following year, and I read the, the words, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I realized something had shifted in my heart. Something had fundamentally changed about the person that I was then that I wasn't previously. And I wasn't the one orchestrating it and doing it. God actually allowed a kind of a preview into what He was doing in my heart. That He was beginning to root my identity in something deeper, something greater than, than my own sense of shame and blame. He was rooting it in Him. And, and that's what happens. When, when your identity is rooted in the rock, when it's not on shifting sand, when it's based in your identity in Christ and you know that it's, immovable that what god has done for you can never be taken away that that at that point when you realize that he has done that you can use everything with reckless abandon you can take the blame for other people even when it's not yours you you can you can use every resource every finance that he puts in your place because the one who gave it to you the first time could give it to you tenfold there's nothing that he wouldn't give that he wouldn't continue to give. And he was nothing that he would give that he wouldn't take away if it weren't for your good. Do you believe that? See, if you do, if you believe that, you will be ge- radically generous with your money, with your time, with your stuff, with your status. You will be. And you won't even know why you're doing it, it'll begin to happen. So that's what we learn. We if we can't risk throwing it away, then our security is in something else. So, so how do you grow in your ability to risk it? How do, you, how do you do that? And Mordecai starts to give us the answer. He says in verse 14, who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, now the word come is a, a, the Hebrew hyphil form of the, of the verb. It's passive. And it could be translated kind of made to come or brought into your position. You were ushered to where you are. And what he's saying to Esther is, Esther, don't you realize that you haven't gotten to where you are except by God's grace alone? The reason you have the position that you do is because it was a gift from Him. You think your beauty was earned? You think the door of opportunity to gain the royal palace was something that you found? No, absolutely not. Now here's the thing. We know it applies to Esther, but what if Mordecai were saying the exact same thing to you? What if he were saying to you, look, you who have been put into your position in your job, in your family, with your bank account, with your retirement fund, with your home, do you not realize that all of this is a grace is a gift of grace from god that you did not earn now we're americans right <laughs> when we hear that the things that we've earned you know that we've worked hard for have, have are actually a gift of grace what happens in our hearts we go no 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 it's mine i earned it i did what i could I did everything. You can't have it. And I think what Mordecai and what God would say back to us is, did you where did you get the talents to work so hard? When did you determine to be born in the United States to have the opportunities that you have? Who gave you the work ethic? Did you earn the work ethic or was it given to you? Oh, it was given to me by my dad. Well, where did he get it from? Well, his dad. Well, who gave it to your grandfather? And we can keep going back and back until finally you get to the one who has no father, which is the one who gave it in the first place, which is the father himself. See, everything that you have is a gift of grace. Grace. I remember, you know, I have an incredible, beautiful, wonderful wife named Mandy. She hates whenever I use those kinds of descriptors, but it's all true. I would say that if she weren't sitting right here. I would. Come on now. And the first time that we had a a conversation together, we were both on a retreat in Ocean City at this place called the ARC Retreat Center, and i for such a time as this, just so happened to bump into her on the stairs, and we were both going in opposite directions, and we ended up getting into a conversation that lasted for, what, three and a half, four hours, well into the night. <laughs> and she just happened to be going upstairs, and I just happened to be going downstairs. You know, but it was my charm and my effort and my good looks that won my wife, right? <laughs> See, you guys know me well enough to know none of that's true. Why did I happen to bump into her that night? It's because she was a gift of grace. Everything that you and I have is a gift from grace, of grace from the God who is the giver of all good things. See, and Esther, she begins to realize this, right? Because she goes from being this sort of complicit, timid, pretty, cowardly little Esther into someone who begins to give orders. And someone who says, if I perish, I perish. I don't care. I'm doing it. So be like her, right? (laughs) Just be like Esther. Use your position for the good of others. Start telling people who you are instead of hiding it. That's always the moral of the story, right? Well, if you've been here any of the weeks up until now, you realize that there's a problem. Here's the thing, though. If you try to follow Esther's example, just like everybody else that we've studied throughout this entire series, it will work for a day. You'll have a really great Monday. <laughs> but how about Tuesday? And Wednesday? And Thursday? How about next month? See, it won't work. Definitely not over the course of Of a lifetime. And here's the reason: is because if you tell yourself to be like Esther because you know that you haven't, then your primary motivation is guilt. And guilt never lasts. Not in a motivating sense, it lasts for years. Some of you have been in households where the primary motivating way that you were kind of ushered into the way that you should live is through guilt. Guilt in your family, guilt in your church, guilt in your relationships, whatever the case might be. And that guilt lasts, but is it motivating guilt? No. See, guilt turns into self-hatred, not self-motivation. So you live under the weight of guilt and shame for enough time, you begin hating yourself. And I think God, by His grace, wants to release you from that. Not pour it on all the more. And so Esther can't just be an example to you that that leads you to guilt. She needs to be a pointer to someone who leads you away from guilt and shame. Leads you into a new day. So so what is that? We have to know there's a true and better Esther, right? There's a true and better Esther. See, we're all created by God and everything that has been given to us has been given to us by Him. And so, do we agree at this point that we owe Him everything? Are we on the same page there? Okay. So we owe Him absolutely everything at every moment, without reservation do we do it no none of us do it i don't do it and you don't do it we live as though everything that we have is ours and ours alone and we want to use everything that we have to build our resumes and our interests and our comfort and our happiness we want to be autonomous from him which means that because we've broken our relationship with god there needs to be something done about that break There needs to be something done to your heart to change you into someone new. And here's the thing. Absolutely every religion on the planet agrees on this. Something has to be done. There is a gulf between us and God, and that gap, that gulf has to be bridged somehow. And every other religion other than Christianity says this. It's our job. It's our responsibility We need to bridge the gap through sacrifices or rituals or meditation or good work or guilt and shame. we got to do something to bridge that gap and bring us together. Now here's the story of Esther. How much could the people of Israel, Esther's people, do to save themselves from the edict that was passed down from the king? How much did they have the ability and influence to do? Not a darn thing. Didn't matter how many good works they did. Didn't matter how many rituals they did. Didn't matter how much meditation they did. Didn't matter how guilty they felt for it. There's nothing that they could do. Because they didn't have the influence nor the access to the king to do it. But someone did. And that woman's name was Esther. And so what does Esther do? She steps in on behalf of her people and she identifies with them. She goes from being hidden and ashamed to being unashamed and saying, these are my people. I am a Jew. Her people were condemned to die and so she stood up and said, I'm one of them. I'm subject to the same judgment that's fallen on them. I will be condemned because they are condemned. And she risks her life to do it. And because she identifies with them, she goes into the throne room of the king a place where no one else could go and she went there to do what no one else could do and what happened those of you who read the end of the story what goes on she saves them, right she found favor in the eyes of the king and because she found favor her the favor that she gained from the king was transferred to her people It was imparted. It was attributed. It was imputed, if you want the theological, technical term, to her people. She was able to save them. Does this sound like anybody? (laughs) Jesus Christ lived in the ultimate palace. He was the Son of God. He had the ultimate beauty, way more beautiful than Esther ever was. And he left it all. He left absolutely all of it. And no one had to send him a strongly worded letter to do it. He chose to do it. He willingly gave it all up. In Philippians 2, verse 6 and 8, we already read this this morning, who, talking about Jesus being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. He didn't use His own place in the palace. Rather, He gave Himself up to nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Do you hear it? He identified with us. He said, I will become one of them so that their condemnation will be my condemnation. And he took it away. Not just at the risk of his life but at the cost of his life. He didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He said, I will perish and I'll still do it. He went to the cross to bridge the gap for us. And so there's nothing left for you to do. There's no amount of guilt that you could heap on yourself. Doesn't matter how many years or decades you've tried to do it up until now. It has not done and cannot do what only Jesus can. Which means now, today, this very moment, he stands before the king of heaven and the favor that he's found in the eyes of this heavenly king is now transferred, imputed, and credited to you. It's yours. Forever. It can never be taken away. It can never be revoked. So here's the truth. When you see Jesus being the ultimate Esther to save you and give you a position with him forever, what does that do to you? See, when you know that He loves you and that your future is in, entirely secure with Him, that changes your identity and it gives you the ultimate freedom to risk anything else that God puts in your hand. What else does He put in your hand? Not as secure as that. And when you realize that He's done that for you, everything else becomes opportunity. See, here's the amazing thing. Esther was able to do what she did only knowing that God gave her a temporary position as the queen of Persia. Right? That's all the grace that she knew is that God put her in the position as the queen. She had no idea how long she was going to be the queen. And it was only the queen of just, I mean, just the most powerful nation in the earth. I mean, it's not, not that great compared to your position. What's your position? So much greater than Esther's. Why do I say that? Why in the world would I be able to say that? It's because your position, O son, O daughter of the king, is so much greater. It comes from the heavenly king. No earthly king can compare. And it's so much more secure. It is in a kingdom that will go on forever and ever and ever. And so what that means, family, is that you and I, we have no excuse because we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Just we'll end on this. If that's true and you believe it, if you believe it, and I'm not assuming that you do, but let's, let's pretend like you do. If you believe it deep down in your heart, how would you then live? How would you use the the positions and the influence that you already said that you have in light of what he's done? Can you think of anything? It's a deep question, I right know might take you all week to unravel that one. One of the things that I was thinking of is, is that um, you would use your position to associate with people that aren't in your position. That you would give your, your time and your stuff and your home and your space away to people that don't have the position that you have with the king that you now know. And that you would give it as Christ gave it to you, which is without reservation to people who don't deserve it and have done nothing to earn it. Wouldn't you? If He did that for you, you would do that for others. And here's the other thing it tells you is that only you are in a position to do what only you can do. Only you have been given the unique opportunities that only you have been given. All of you mentioned something different when we talked about our positions of influence. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that word handiwork is is the Greek word poema, which is where we get our word poem from, which means that we're His artwork. We're His uniquely crafted artwork. And that you, you in particular have been crafted with certain gifts and talents and strengths and weaknesses and experiences and even pain in such a way that you are, are tuned to, to be His instrument in a way that only you can be for such a time as only you are in. And so that means that there are people that God is sending you to this week as an instrument of grace that only you can be in that only you can reach who is that who is that for you if you don't know ask him because if you're in christ then you're a child of god if you're a child of god then you have a spirit in you and if you have a spirit in you you have a mission are you walking in it now you might say and this this is what we'll end on i don't know how, where do i even begin what do i even do I don't even know how to start this. Where do I even go from here? How will I know what to do? And here here's the answer. It actually comes from the story. Once Esther takes her takes on her true identity as the queen of Persia and the savior of her people, she begins to use her position and her authority to know exactly what to do and she starts to tell people what they should be doing, right? The very first thing she does is, I'm going to go do it. You guys fast for me. She gives instructions. Because now, in her new identity, she knows exactly what to do. And she begins to send messages to her people so that they then know what to do. You see where I'm going with this? Jesus, the greater Esther, after his death and resurrection ascends back into the heavenly palace and the Bible says that now seated in a position of authority, He knows exactly what to do because He's the one orchestrating history itself. He's not just a bystander. He's actually the one doing it. And not just that. If that weren't great enough, right? He hasn't just sent us a message of what to do. He sent us a messenger. And that messenger's name is the Holy Spirit. You don't just get little momentary messages telling you what to do on occasion from a queen who thinks that she knows what to do. You get moment by moment floods of information from the king who knows exactly what to do because he's the one doing it. How great is that? Right? You, you can't get any better directive for how to live your life than that. To know what to do and how to do it and where to do it. So here's the question. Are you listening to the messenger? Because he has a message for you. I'm convinced this morning, if you haven't heard it already, (laughs) he wants to say it. So let's pray and ask him. Okay? Father, we thank you that you are... Wow. You're in charge of history. You're directing history. You you are seated in a position high above all other principalities and authorities. Above every earthly king. Right now you are directing history. And you are in a position that we cannot go. But you gave up that position for us. So that one day we will have it. And right now from the time between now and then. God, we understand that that you don't want us to be outside the gate and alone. You want us to understand what you're saying, when you're saying it, how you're saying it. And so, please speak to us. Please fill us. Remind us of your love and your grace. And help us, God, to, 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 to use what we've been given for the sake of our King. We pray for his sake. Amen.